to be abiding for a while. It's in the book of Romans. So you, if you haven't already, you can, you can turn there. Uh, book of Romans. And with this book, there's a lot of reasons why we're doing this. But the primary reason we're going through the book of Romans is because um, the elders have decided, you know, every... Every season of time, we want, to, we want to focus on different things. And this next season of time, as we've rolled into 2020, we know that this is going to be very potentially a, a big year for um, our church. And part of that's just because of the, what God's doing um, in the building process. Lord willing, we'll be uh, breaking ground on the new church facility. But uh, more exciting than the building is just what he's doing in, in our lives and in people's hearts as, as, as the message of Jesus goes out and, and it takes hold of people and they then take that out into the, the, the surrounding neighborhoods and um, in their world. And so it's exciting. And as we do that, we want to make sure that we're focused on, you know, the fundamentals, I guess, of, of faith. It's always good, I guess, if I think back of, to, to the class that we were in just this last week, it was all really all about the fundamentals of, of, um, of security and of firearm handling and all that kind of stuff. But fundamentals are really important. And one of the words that gets thrown around in church, churchiness is the word discipleship. And we've decided this year our focus is really going to be on discipleship. So since we're using that word, we want to define what that word is. If you happen to be taking notes, you'll see this in your notes. And so I just want to define discipleship real quick. So discipleship, um, the way that we'll define it, and there's a lot of different definitions, but this is kind of going to be our working definition. Discipleship is someone who believes, someone who believes in Jesus. Okay, so we'll start there. Someone who believes, what does that mean? That means that they place their faith in Jesus Christ. They place their faith in Christ. They believe that Jesus is God's son, born of the Virgin Mary, that Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a horrific death. He was murdered because of his love for you and me. And so his blood covered all of our sin. All who would trust in him, his blood covers. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who believes in, by faith, Jesus. And that, and then goes on, and that person, that disciple, seeks to, you can put a lot of words here, I use the word imitate, seeks to imitate, seeks to follow, seeks to be like Jesus. Um, pretty straightforward. Someone who believes in Jesus seeks to imitate Jesus and imitate him in all, keyword there, all areas of their life, because maybe you know someone, there are not a lot of these people, that might say they're a follower of Jesus, and that shows up very clearly on a Sunday morning. But maybe on another day of the week, it doesn't show up quite as, as clearly. Or maybe they show up well, he shows up well in a small group setting, but at work, woohoo, it's more like Satan shows up. You know, so, so a disciple of, of Christ is someone who believes in Christ, seeks to imitate Christ in all facets, in their home life, in their personal private life, with their close friends and associates, with their work, in society as a whole, in all areas of, of his or her daily life. It's a 24-7, 365 kind of scenario. And if you are at all like me, then you fail at this all of the time. 
No one is perfect. The only one who is perfect is this, is Jesus himself. But a disciple is one who says, I trust in Christ for my salvation. I seek to imitate him in all areas of my daily life. That's what a disciple is. Now, if you're in a growth group, you'll get a chance to argue about, is, is everyone who trusts Jesus a disciple? Some would say yes, some would say no. There's people that just trust in Jesus, and then there's disciples of Jesus. Both are going to heaven, just there's one that's on a different, a different level, okay? Um, we're not going to, dis- churches split over that question, so that's why you get to argue about it in your small group settings, but we're not going to do that here. But that's what discipleship is, and this book of Romans has been called by many as Faith's Fort Knox. If there was only one Bible, that, uh, or one book of the Bible that many people said if they could only have one book of all 66 books of the Bible. Um, If you don't know, the Bible is comprised of 66 different books. It's broken into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you could only have one of all those 66 books, most people would agree it would be the book of Romans because the book of Romans really does a great job in summarizing the whole story of God, Old and New Testament, as well as it does a great job of giving the key fundamental teachings or doctrines of the Christian faith. And so um, we, we kind of last week, we, we got a good picture of just kind of an introductory thought. We kind of covered 17 verses, and that was a little bit too much. And um, I was going to cover 13 verses this week, but on Tuesday, I went and visited um, Pastor Rob, and I don't see him here. He might be in the overflow room. I hope not, because he got both of his knees replaced on Tuesday. And it was a successful surgery, and it's amazing what, and Sherry probably knows what they, it's amazing what they can do in, with knees these days. Well, he got both of his knees replaced um, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesday. It was a two-hour surgery. He was coming out of his anesthesia by 5.30. I think I saw him at 6, and if he had not been in his gown and in a hospital bed, I wouldn't have even known, although he was a little bit loopy from the drugs, just a little bit. But um, he was a pastor for 28 years up in Cougar, and he asked what I was going to be preaching on, and I told him what my text was and how far I was going to be going, and he, he said, and I don't know if it was the, the, um, the anesthetics or whatnot that were, that were wearing off, but he says, that's a lot. That's way too much. He was very forward about that. He's not normally that forward, but I heard it. And so um, anyway... Um, as one of our elders, I submit to his, his lead. And so we're not going to cover 13 verses. We're actually only going to cover one this morning, one verse. So you can thank him for that. Hopefully the sermon's not that long, just off of one verse. But um, that one verse is going to be verse 18. Um, but before we jump in, as is always important, nothing I say matters. It's only what the Holy Spirit says to your heart, and he just happens to be using me as his vessel. So let's pray, and then we'll start right in. Father, again, I just, we just commit this time to you. Lord, I thank you for every single person that is here, young and old. I thank you for every aspect of, of the morning. Um, I even think of our, our Sunday school and jam teachers right now as they, they, they teach our kids the, the, the fundamental Bible stories of our faith and the nursery workers who, who care for the, 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 the young ones. Um, Lord, I also thank you. I see the offits here. We just thank you and we pray for Hudson has continued to pray for his, his, um, his health to be restored and for the parents as well, and Matt, Matt and Maggie. And we also, Lord, just commit this time to you. I pray that you would do only what you can do, which is speak to hearts. And I pray that you'd use me to, to be your vessel. And in your name we pray, amen. So 
With that being said, we're covering one verse, and that is verse, is verse 18. But in order to give just a little bit of context to verse 18, I'm going to back up and read what some say are the two theme verses of the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. So I'll, I'll read this. I'll read and remember. I can't do two things at once. Okay. All right. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now verse 18, where we're camping today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, backing up our theme my goal is with all of the sermons to kind of wrap them around the, the, the theme of discipleship. And so for today, um, the, the one big idea is that a disciple accepts the truth of and the truth about God's wrath. This could be one of those sermons that shrinks church attendance, <laughs> if you think about it. This is this and the following verses that we'll get to over the next couple weeks are some of the passages of scripture that that has a truth that flies in the face of our modern mind. And it's it's something that's maybe difficult for us to hear. If that's you today, I do ask that you at least make it through the end of the sermon. That would be important. But the wrath of God, a disciple is one who accepts the truth of and about the wrath of God. So it kind of leads me to ask this question that we're going to come back to a couple different times. The question is, who or what kind of God do you worship? Who or what kind of God do you worship? That's an incredibly important question for all of us to ask. Well, I should say that's a very important question for anyone who calls them a disciple to ask, because as a disciple, that would be predicated upon you knowing and following the teaching of the one in whom you're following. If you're going to disciple, if you're going to imitate, if you're going to be like someone, in this case Christ, you better know his, his character and his position on certain things. And today that thing is wrath. So verse 18 again, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of, of men. And again, men, that's a term for humanity. So it's, it's men and women. So um, we really cannot understand the rest of this section of Scripture, following verses of verse 18, 19 and following. We really can't understand the book of Romans nor can we really understand the story of God if we do not have an understanding of the wrath of God. Very key teaching, key doctrine, and oftentimes neglected doctrine within Christ's church. So, 
this doctrine has fallen on hard times, and, and maybe because of some of the things I've already said, that we live in a world today where uh, any concept of, of being mean or wrath or even consequences for actions isn't normally accepted very well. I mean, we live in the day and an age, and, and I must be getting older because this seems to bother me more than it should, but where everyone gets a trophy for participating. Now, maybe that shouldn't bother me so much, but it's kind of like, I didn't get a trophy when I failed, you know, uh, so, but anyway, that's, I won't get on that soapbox, but, but, but that being said, we live in a, in a culture today that really doesn't like to, to look at consequences for actions, instead always kind of looking to define things a certain way, so when we look at this concept of, of, of the wrath of God, it, it, it causes us to ask questions, for example, like, how, how can hell be just? How can it be just that there's a hell? Why would God command his people, the Israelites, to slaughter the Canaanites, which includes not just men, but also women and children? Why would God allow, that doesn't sound right to me. Why does God always seem so angry when I read my Bible, or especially my Old Testament? We had an awesome question from one of our students this last week. The question came up, in a, in a class at Clark, and it was, how can God be good if he is all-powerful and is the one that controls circumstances? How could God be good if, if, if he is all-powerful and he's still in his all-powerfulness, omnipotence, he still allows bad things to happen, bad things to happen to good people? These are incredibly good questions for all of us to ask. Um, Another similar question, and really more the question that we're asking this morning and looking at this morning, is how can God be both loving and wrathful? How can he be both of those things? It's a great question. And the fact that so many people struggle with questions like these points to the very importance of having a right thinking, a biblical thinking, about what God's wrath actually is. So... What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look a little bit of what God's wrath is and, and, and what it is not. So here's five, five biblical truths about God's wrath, and that's what you have in your notes here. Um, first off, what we need to know is that God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. Uh, it's become common for many to argue, many to argue that the God of the Old Testament is this moral monster. A moral monster that by no means is worthy of worship. Um, however, it doesn't seem like our biblical authors hold that same position or that same opinion. Uh, in fact, God's wrath is said to be in perfect accord, in perfect alignment with, in perfect agreement with the justice of God. Paul writes here, he writes, but because of your hard and Impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Similarly, in Proverbs 24, verse 12, it says this, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he, God, who weighs the heart, perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will not repay man according, will he not repay man according to his work? 
J.R. Packer, theologian, writer, in his book, pretty famous book, Knowing God, says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the, the volatile, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and a necessary reaction to an objective moral evil. What he's saying is, it's not God losing his temper. When God's wrath is displayed, it's not God having a temper tantrum like we see in the aisles of Walmart with young kids. That's not what this is. That's what J.R. Packer's saying. Um, now, what's good about this, we always can look to the context of a passage to actually get a little bit more about what's being said. And so in this particular context, in verse 18, it says that, that God's wrath is revealed. What's important to note there, God's wrath, it is revealed. So it is revealed, it not, it's not that it was revealed back then, it's not that it's going to be revealed, it actually is revealed now, it's a, and it's an ongoing revealing. It is revealed and it will continue to be revealed, um, which leads us to ask the question, what is it that brings about, what is it that brings the revelation of or the revealing of the wrath of God. I, I, I always want to know that. I would want to know that with past bosses or my parents. You know, I want to know, okay, what is it gonna, that's going to make so-and-so mad at me or my parents angry? What's going to get me grounded? I'd want to know these things. Well, Scripture is so clear in teaching. What is it that brings about the wrath of God? The first one is godlessness. So godlessness. Um, with godlessness, what that is is it speaks to a disregard, a disregard to God's presence, a disregard to God's purpose, a disregard to God's rights, a disregard to God's character. So really, godlessness in a person's life or godlessness in a culture points to a broken relationship, a broken vertical relationship. If we just want to look at it very simply, it's a broken vertical relationship with God. That's what godlessness is. That can be in a person, that can be in a, in a society, that can be in, in a lot of different contexts. But that's what godlessness is. It's basically godlessness. It's, God's not in the picture. Um, it's a brokenness in a vertical relationship with God. Now, the second one is wickedness, depending on your translation, wickedness or unrighteousness. So this, this basically speaks in regards to brokenness towards humans. This is, this is in the way that there's a brokenness between the vertical relationship between humanity and God, individual and God, wickedness and unrighteousness is talking about this broken horizontal relationship, a broken relationship between one another. And, and so it, it's one of these situations, um, and, and when we see it, we see it all over the place. We see it in our own lives. We see this brokenness between vertically between one another or between societies. We see it in our politics where, where hate seems to drive the, the conversation, to drive the, the, overall, the overall big picture. So um, now what's awesome about this, knowing what brings about God's wrath, it also shows us what brings about God's pleasure, what brings about God's joy. And, and, and for those of you who, who've grown up in church and, and know the Bible story, you know what happens when the, the religious people go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what's most important? And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him so that they can kill him. But ultimately, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So the very thing that brings about the wrath of God is the broken relationship vertically with 
with us and him and the broken relationship horizontally between us and other people. Well, the opposite of that is what brings about the pleasure, brings about the joy, brings about the, the, the enjoyment between us as a people and us and God. It restores both the vertical and the horizontal relationship. So God is just. His wrath is, is just. What else is it? God's wrath is obviously to be feared. God's wrath is to be feared. Why is it to be feared? It's to be feared because all have sinned, according to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ultimately, all are deserving of God's wrath because of what we call original sin. This is sin that came in in the Garden of Eden with Adam. That, that sin of Adam has been laid upon all of us. And so all humanity has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God's wrath is to be feared because we are justly condemned as sinners apart from Christ. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We won't get there today, but we will get there. We're justly condemned as sinners apart from Christ. God's wrath is to be feared because God is all-powerful. Scripture teaches that. Jeremiah 32, 17. God's wrath is to be feared because God promises eternal punishment for those apart from Christ. Matthew 25, 46. So as humankind walks in ungodliness, as humankind walks in unrighteous ways, they're doing what the end of this verse says they're doing. They are suppressing the truth. See that? They're suppressing the truth. The word picture there in the original language is someone that has a jar that is over full or under pressure, and they're trying to keep the lid on the jar. But the jar is wanting to explode, and it's, it's leaking out. It's like my Dr. Pepper I put in the freezer to cool down, and I pulled it out, and I opened it up, and I thought that it would be okay, and it explodes. I was, so I was trying to suppress it back into the, back into the, the can. And it, that's kind of the idea. It's like the suppressor or a silencer on the end of a gun. You put it on there to pull the trigger to, to suppress the sound. You'll notice it doesn't instead of going boom, it goes You still hear it, right? There's still the truth, there's still the noise, there's still the content that's spilling out, but it's being suppressed. And, and humanity, when we, when we live in a way that's disconnected from, that's not acknowledging God, who he is, his nature, his, his rights as the creator of all things, when we live in brokenness in our horizontal relationships with one another, the actions of those things is like us suppressing the truth of God. It's suppressing them. Um, it's true that, that uh, disease and natural disasters, like kind of what's going on in Australia right now, um, that those things wreak havoc on the world that we live in, but the great majority of all of the world's evil, and ask any police officer or first responder, the great majority of all of the world's evil is in, initiated and is perpetrated by people committing sins against one another, and ultimately sins against the Lord. Murder, theft, hostility, violence. This is sin. This prevents the world from being better because it otherwise would if this wasn't present 
It's suppressing the truth. Now, um, a good question when um, in our, and my kids, both of them, two, my two oldest ones go to running start and they're down at Clark and they tell me what they're hearing in their classrooms and how their teachers are, are telling them that no Christian views are welcome in their class. And, and um, it made me think of this quote about suppressing the truth. This is a quote from Dave Gobbett. It says, the man who tells you, or the woman, that tells you that truth does not exist is asking you not to believe him. So don't. It's funny how people that deny absolute truth are denying it with an absolute. They're suppressing the truth. They're suppressing the truth. Uh, more on suppressing the truth. We get to see the outflow of the suppression of truth, the consequences of the suppression of truth in verses 19 through 32, if you want to read that in preparation for the next couple of weeks. Thirdly, thirdly, God's wrath is consistent. God's wrath is consistent. If my dad was here, he would be smiling right now because he always tell me he, if he's anything, he's consistent. And so his, well, his wrath was always consistent. Uh, God's wrath is consistent, and you can put there in the Old and the New Testament because it's common to think that the Old Testament, God is mean, like I mentioned earlier. God is mean, God is harsh, God's wrath-filled, and the God of the New Testament is... God of love, and he's kind, and he's patient, and he's loving. But neither of these portraits are representative of Scripture's teaching on the wrath of God. Neither one of them. We find um, immensely fearful descriptions of God's wrath in both of the Old and the New Testament. Here's just a few of them. There's over 600 depictions between the two Testaments of the wrath of God. Some descriptions and some some um, examples jeremiah jeremiah 30 23 says behold the storm of the lord wrath has gone forth a whirling tempest it will burst upon the head of the wicked nahum 1 2 the lord is jealous he's a jealous and he's an avenging god the lord is avenging and wrathful the lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies Obviously, Romans, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Revelation 19.15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Ephesians, Ephesians 5.6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Matthew 21, 12, Jesus, he enters the temple. He drove out all who sold and who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. You get to see his anger, his wrath coming forth. God's wrath is consistent in the Old and the New Testament. And if you're reading it and you're thinking God is mean here and he's nice here, um, you're, you're missing the bigger picture of what's going on. Uh, and the bigger picture we start to see revealed here in points four and five. God's wrath. God's wrath is his love and action against sin. It's his love, and, and I need to kind of explain that just a little bit. In, in our spiritually shallow, soft, post-Christian, post-modern world that we live in, uh, where truth seems to be whatever you want it to be, um, wrath and love 
to seem that they can't exist. And so we just kind of philosophize wrath out of the picture or we are disinterested in anything that could bring wrath or consequence. Um, But this kind of goes back to the question we asked earlier. What kind of God do you worship? What kind of God do you worship? Do you worship a loving God or do you worship a wrathful God? Because it surely can't be both of those things, right? Well, this is the important distinction that I'd like all of us to get this morning, if we can get anything. First off, we need to know that in his nature, God is not wrath. God is love. God is holy. And because of his love and because of his holiness, due to that, his wrath is a response to the rebellion of humankind. That's his wrath. That's where his wrath comes forth. It's not his character, but it is his, it's his righteous response. It's the right response. And we still might not like that. And I would just say, I feel like I'm a really nice guy. And I hopefully would be considered by most to be loving. But if I'm out on the street and someone picks on my kid, my son, my daughters, someone picks on, tries to lay hands on my wife, someone picks on, hurts someone in my church family, the wrath comes out. The wrath comes out. And if that happens, then your pastor's probably going to be starting up a prison ministry at some point. (laughs) But it will come out. It absolutely will come out. Does that mean I'm not loving? And does that mean I'm wrathful? No, it's my response to an unrighteous act. It is actually in my response to, and I see this oftentimes, I saw this especially when, when running the fabrication shop and I had to come down and after giving lots and lots of warnings to certain, my, certain employees and I would finally get to that point that I have to, I'd have to let them go. Um, I wouldn't tell them this because it would make them really mad, but in my heart so that I could sleep at night, but because it was true, I knew that by letting that welder go that that it was the most loving thing I could do for them because if I kept just putting up with the constant rebellion and the mess that it was making within within uh, the other the other welders on our team then it was it was the most unloving if I don't do anything about that it's the most unloving thing wrath and God's wrath is the righteous response to human rebellion that's the righteous response. Our problem is that in our day and age, we seem to stand in judgment of God. We seem to, if God doesn't do something or God doesn't give um, or, or respond the way that we would, we would do it, we then judge him for it. But that's not how it works. He's, he's, he's God. He's not us. So let's just kind of take one step back and ask the question, why is it? that Jesus came to this earth. What's the, why are we here right now? We're here because of what it says there in Matthew 1, normally a Christmas verse. Mary shall give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who shall save his people from their sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here, to be reminded that we're sinful and broken people 
And because of God's grace and because of our desire to imitate him, we come together to encourage each other. We come together to sit under the authority of God's word. God's word is called a a, a double-edged sword, um, which means that it is uh, an instrument that would cut us up, um, cut out the cancer, cut out the mess that's in our life that sometimes hurts. But it's the necessary treatment for us to be well. That's what God provides in his son Jesus. He provides that necessary treatment, which, which again leads to this, the, 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 the verse that all of, most of us know if you don't watch a baseball game and pay attention to the sign that's behind the catcher. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life eternal, everlasting life. This is why God came. He came to save people from their sin. He wouldn't do that if there wasn't a need for it. There's a need for it because without that, there is hell. And as a church, we're here to equip you, one another, of the truth, of the love of God that's displayed in the person of Jesus Christ so that people can hear this message and be saved from um, not just saved from hell, that's the most important thing, and that's the number one motivator when we look at Scripture of why we preach the gospel is to, to, to save people from hell, but it's also when that happens, that's what brings joy. That, that's what brings a restoration because when we have a restored relationship with God, we become people that are much more forgiving. When we are grateful for the way that God has worked in our hearts, we are much less bitter people. There's still, it still creeps up, which is why we come to church, which is why we have small groups, which is why we read the word, which is why we pray so God can continually shine the flashlight on the dark parts of our hearts because we all have them. But we do this because as we come to know our Savior more and more, as we learn to imitate him more and more, as we deal with the, 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 the stuff that creeps into our life and the things that trip us up, when we do these things, um, it brings God glory, it makes God look good, and it also brings restoration in our relationships with one another, and there's nothing better than that. So poverty, hunger, disease, war, sex trafficking, crime of any sort, climate change, addictions, homelessness, ignorance, or any other depravity that you can see in our society, these things bring global suffering. And yet, those things, as horrible as they are, especially when they're running rampant, they pale in comparison to the pitfall of being under the wrath of God. All those things are tragic, but all of those things are temporary. They might last a a lifetime, but God's wrath lasts for eternity, or the results of God's wrath last for an eternity And that needs to sink in. We have to remember that truth, especially when we live in a culture that doesn't like to be confronted with anything that doesn't feel fuzzy and warm, but that's true. If it's not true, then none of this is true, or none of this matters. But, fifthly, 
Fifthly, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Euangelion, the gospel, that's why it's good news. That's what that means. The gospel means good news. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. It is satisfied. We have the ultimate good news in Christ. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Because of Christ, God can rightly call sinners justified. That's a message we'll come to when we get to Romans 3. God has done what we could not do, and he has done what we did not deserve. He He's done that. He's, he's, he's showered grace upon us, and that leads us to the words that are in the old hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. And it said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? As the worship team comes up, I'd like you to stand um, as, we, as, we, as you're able, as we, as we pray.